Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, along with co-host Andy Dolich, and today's guest in Peter Pilling, uh, the athletic director at Columbia University. Really excited to have Peter on to talk about his career path into the, the college athletics industry, and, and he's, you know, Peter, you've been a, a trailblazer in that, in that space, and um, we're with IMG for a little while as well. Uh, really excited to, to kind of talk to you about what you think the path to the athletic director seat is and, and what um, the, the inner workings of an athletic department look like. So Andy, uh, I know you've known Peter for a little while and common thread amongst us, we are all Ohio University Bobcats. So really uh, excited to, to throw out the, uh, the Go Bobcats. Today. I don't know if you can say it, but Ohio University is sort of the Columbia of sports <laughs> management program. <laughs> no, I don't think we can say that because Columbia has a highly regarded. They do, program. they do. Thank well, you. thank you very much for having me on. They do have a, but as as you know, Andy, there's a Columbia connection with the Ohio University Sports Administration program with Dr. Mason, who got his doctorate at Columbia. So, it all all the roads lead back to Columbia and Ohio University in some way, shape, or form. And and the great Walter O'Malley, as we were talking about before the show. Um, you know, who uh, bought the Brooklyn Dodgers for $800,000 um, as when he was a banker. And the Dodgers are worth a little more than $800,000 today, <laughs> I think. Um, but it was his sort of view of the future, pre-ESPN, pre-digital, pre-anything, to say, you know, I think there's going to be an industry in the world of sports, not just the pros, but college and events. And he was it. I mean, he was the genius that said, I'm committed to this. And his early conversations with Dr. Clifford Brownell at Columbia, of which Dr. Mason was the student that led to Mason, who had then uh, relocated to OU to reach back to O'Malley after the Dodgers moved west and bingo, You've got uh, a few thousand Bobcat brothers and sisters that have done pretty well for themselves yeah. in the business. Absolutely. Great vision by Dr. Mason. And, you know, it's, it's pretty ironic when you think about Athens, a pretty small, remote location. Uh, but yet what they've done in the, in the sports world and the presence that they've had in all different aspects of uh, sports throughout uh, is pretty remarkable. And it's a tribute to the vision that he had. Yeah, Peter, as you spent some time in Athens and you were probably thinking, what do I want to do with my life, right? And and what's the career path I want to try and take? Where did, where did you go and, and how did you get involved? Yeah, in let, let me take a, a step back. I was an undergraduate at BYU. I was an accounting major and I knew ultimately I wanted to get in college sports. And I, Mike King at the time was the business manager in the athletic department at BYU. And I, I literally went in his office and I knocked on his door and I said, hey, I want to get involved in this industry someday. Can you just put me in charge of anything? Can I get any type of experience? And I was in charge of a JV football travel. Uh, and so that was my responsibility. I did a few other different projects. And over about two years period of time while I was finishing up my accounting degree, I just kind of got my feet wet in, Work, went and worked for a CPA firm for a while. And then ironically, I, uh, I applied for the job of director of accounting for the NCAA and uh, finished in the top two or three and didn't get it. But I was advised by a couple of people at the NCAA that 
you may want to get a master's in sports administration, did some research, found out about the reputation of Ohio University, went to school and uh, loved every minute of it. And it just kind of prepared me to be an administrator in so many different ways uh, in terms of intercollegiate athletics. And at that point, you know, typically you would do an internship. And I was fortunate enough to do an internship at the University of Kentucky. It was... uh, it was Coach Patino's actually second year. And as I recall, I think they may have still been on NCAA violation at that time based upon some previous situations with basketball. But CM Newton was the athletic director at the time. Gene Filippo worked there. And so they were great mentors for me. And then kind of started my journey in the business. You know, one of the challenges you have is you, in order to kind of move up and get additional experiences, you have to move around. I worked at Moorhead State, worked at St. Bonaventure, and then just kind of continued that path with the opportunity to ultimately be an athletic director and and understand the industry and kind of get my feet wet, not only on the internal side, because that's where I felt comfortable uh, from a CPA background, but also on the external side, make sure I had that well-roundedness with uh, marketing and then ultimately the development side of the business. And then with the, with the ultimate goal of getting to be an athletic director. And I kind of took a sidestep for a while. I worked with Ben Sutton at ISP sports and then worked with IMG as one of their regional vice presidents. And then a search firm called me about the position at Columbia and was very fortunate to connect with President Bullinger. And, and then I've been at Columbia for about five years and love every single minute of it. And, and the seventh athletic director in Columbia history. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible in terms of the amount of people that have, that have held that position. And, um, you know, that's in terms of, you know, what you're responsible for from, uh, you know, within the Ivy League, having so many different sports, right? It's not, it's not necessarily your 17 programs. It's, I mean, you guys got a lot. Yes, and it, so it, exactly. And I think that's the model. If you look at the history of the Ivy League when it was formed, and if you look at the governing principles of the Ivy League, that is that true balance between academics and athletics. And I think we take great pride in the experiences our student athletes have on the respective campuses. And to your point too, Jake, you know, that we have 31 sports and we have the least amount in the Ivy League. I think Harvard has 42 sports. And you think about, we have approximately 800 student athletes and Harvard has over 1,200 student athletes. So it's a, it's, it's a phenomenal enterprise, if you will. And it, and it gives the kids a remarkable experience, both academically and athletically. And the one thing that you know, when I came here first, you kind of think about Ivy League and think, oh, by the way, they're really, really smart and they happen to play a sport. It's almost the exact opposite. They have to be really, really good at a particular sport and they happen to be really, really smart. And so we're able to excel in some smaller sports uh, on the national level and then look for opportunities to compete across the board. But uh, I, uh, I, I really cherish my time here because you, you just interact with uh, just remarkable individuals. Uh, the student athletes are inspiring and what they do in terms of just changing the world and their aspirations and, and the academic experiences they have is very, very fulfilling. Peter, a few questions about that. So am I correct that the Ivy League in terms of all the sports, you, you talked about Harvard to a you know piddling 31 that Columbia has, uh, as a conference, you guys blow everybody in, else away, right? In terms of combined uh, different correct. sports that would disciplines, be there, you know, there's. I think Ohio yeah. State has a pr- pretty significant number. Yeah, yeah. And Stanford has thirty-seven, or but if you added up all the Ivy League institutions, and and not to these are my words, not yours, but 
you actually represent something that seems to have been pretty important since ancient Greece, I think, which is strong mind, strong body, student athletes, that people would go, oh, yes, student athletes. That's what this is all about. And, you know, just thinking about the Olympics, I see it at Stanford, and I don't know what the number is from the Ivy Leagues, but okay, so maybe you're not the number one draft pick next week in the NFL, although there's a whole bunch of Ivy Leaguers. Uh, one right here in San Francisco, right. I think Kyle Juszczyk, right, right, from Harvard or someplace, but a bunch. And you think about Olympians, you think about great sports men and women in the Olympic sports. I would not say smaller sports, but the Olympic sports. And it's really mind-blowing, and I don't think the athletes in the Ivy League get near enough credit, right? They could be a punchline to some clowns in some other conference, but if you really drill down, it's pretty No, absolutely. Um, you know, like, for example, in Rio, we had just Columbia. We had three Olympians, um, and we had Katie Miley, who was a swimmer here, won a gold medal and won a bronze medal in her respective event. Um, and the, we were anticipating in Tokyo – it, this is the first uh, – Columbia is actually known for, amongst other things, our fencing program. We've won the national championship three out of the last five years. And we were – this was the first cycle on the Olympics where they had all three weapons, uh, Epe, Foil, and Sabre. And so we were anticipating adding, having anywhere from four to six Olympians that were Columbia grads. Just in, the, just in fencing, we had a baseball player that was on the Israeli team. And then we had a couple track athletes uh, throughout. And so, you know, we were thinking we pot potentially could have seven to ten uh, Olympians um, there in Tokyo. And so to that point, not only, the, not only the Summer Olympics, but we have a great presence in the Winter Olympics with hockey and with skiing, with a number of different sports, whether it be from Dartmouth and Cornell and Harvard and, and Yale, uh, from a lot of winter sport Olympians. So it's, it, it does have a great presence uh, on Olympic scale. And we have a lot of international students, too. So it's, it's nice to have that diversity on campus and in the different aspects of that. That brings above and beyond the, you know, the classroom academic experiences, all the different experiences you have around uh, just learning about different people from different walks of life. Right. And you have, I mean, you're a school, you're a global institution. And I say that with all due respect, that people from all over the world want to get into Columbia. They want to go there. They want that experience um, that very few other places can present. And as a segue to the twilight zone of the world in which we all live today, Peter, with the Olympians that you talked about, with sports in the fall, with no March Madness, what, and I'm not asking you to speculate because nobody knows when and nobody knows exactly how, but you're, you know, you're an interactive person. So what kind of conversations have you had with some of these athletes who been training for years and can't go yeah. to the Olympics this year, yeah. maybe next year. How or, you know, uh, athletic director Pilling, what about football? What can you tell me? So 
How, how do you have? Well, let me let me tackle the first one of the Olympians. You know, there were a couple of student athletes at Columbia that took the year off in order to train for the Olympics. We had a, a fencer and then we had a young man from Switzerland who was going to be an Olympic diver. And so they, they took the year off just to train for the Olympics. So the, obviously unfortunate from that standpoint. Um, and then in terms of just what the world we're living in right now with COVID-19, it's, it's changed everything. And so there's a lot of uncertainty out there and we're having a lot of discussions about what the future holds. And New York City obviously has is, is faced its series of challenges. And so we're looking at various opportunities to model out perspectives and, and do we come back? What happens if we're still virtual in the fall? What happens if we're a hybrid of that or what happens, you know, ultimately, hopefully there's some really smart people out there in this world that will invent a vaccine as soon as possible and we can get it up and running and get back to normal. I think we've all realized that we miss sports. Uh, we miss sports from a competitive standpoint. We miss sports from a broadcasting standpoint. And we just miss the level, element of competition that it brings. And we want to get that back. I think when we come out of this, I think we'll be better people. I think we're going to have a little bit more empathy towards our friends and families and neighbors. But I think that we'll enjoy sports maybe to a different degree than we ever have just because we've missed it for a while. I couldn't agree more. And I, I would say not to to take this lightly, but as we all sort of, if we go out, you know, to do our walk or run or try to embrace our physical side, I've become a much greater uh, proponent of dogs than I was before <laughs> because I've had a number of quality <laughs> discussions with dogs walking around the neighborhood that I never thought. I'm not a dog guy, but I'm, I'm really thinking dogs. Are Andy, Andy that sounds like a ph phenomenal podcast <laughs> idea. You might want to run with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we're, we're on the, ARF. the dog, the dog podcast. We're on the ARF network, Peter. You can find us. <laughs> you can find us. Uh, yeah. Um, go ahead, Jake. I know you had. Peter. Yeah, no, I, I, in terms of, you know, the things that you've learned uh, from all your different stops you mentioned earlier uh, of going to different places in order to move up, what are some of the things that you've learned throughout your journey that you were able to then apply to your role once you got yeah, to I, Columbia? I, I would probably focus on, most importantly, the value of relationships, uh, you know, maintaining relationships and maintaining genuine relationships because they're going to stay with you the rest of your life. You know, you, you mentioned that Andy and I have been friends for a long time and I reach out to him when I, we, we have a lot of donors in the Bay Area and every time I'm in Palo Alto when we were in the past to meet with Bill Campbell or now to celebrate Bill's life when we go out there, I reach out to Andy. And so I think, you know, it's, it's a relationship business. The, the importance of developing true and genuine relationships have phenomenal impact in so many different ways, whether how you hire a coach, how you assess relationships, how you assess individuals, and then on the development side, how you really let people see the vision of what you're trying to accomplish and how they embrace what you're trying to do for your respective institution. You hit on the development piece uh, in terms of dealing with donors and relationships, and many would say that, that development or working in development fundraising is, is a, somewhat of a path to becoming an athletic director or at least an important piece of understanding you know, some of the revenue flow, right? Um, can you give us a quick kind of high level of what are the different aspects that you really need to understand being in the seat that you're in and uh, being that there is no one path and A plus B doesn't equal C, 
Um, what are some of the things that you would give advice to those who are, who are working yeah, in athletic I think departments? The, one of the most important things you can thing. do is get a diversity of, of job responsibilities. And that's easier said than done. But, you know, when you think about it, development is an important side of it. Revenue generation is a huge important side. But, you know, I, I just was on a Zoom call with our CFO. And I, because my background as a C, working for a CPA firm, I can understand what a balance sheet is and or I can understand the ramifications of an income statement. And as we're building out models to look for ways to save money as we move forward. So in a perfect world, you have a balance. Um, I think you see a lot more opportunities based upon people's capacity to raise money, that that opens up a lot of doors. But it kind of goes in cycles. You know, at one point, there was a compliance cycle and people that had a compliance background or people that had a business background, so to speak. And But I think the cycle we're in right now is people have the opportunity to assess revenue opportunities and maximizing fundraising capacities. You know, it'll be interesting to see how we come out of this. You could look at Power 5 schools, and a lot of people were in an arms race. And now, depending on what happens with football, I think everybody's going to be need to be fiscally responsible. And so that may, uh, you know, we may have to take, you know, count to 10 and step back and say, is, is that facility really necessary? Is that coaching salary really necessary? And so it's kind of that balance of needs and wants and just chasing after the craziness that is in college sports to some degree in certain certain campuses. And I was so lucky when I got the um, consultant role um, after um, I left the 49ers to work with Peter and Tom Stoltz and Ben Sutton and so many other regional leaders for IMG College. Um, and I saw how much more complicated the world was for someone in Peter's position. You know, a pro guy, I really, when I got up the poll, I only had to listen to a megalomaniac <laughs> billionaire scream at me. Um, and it's like, okay, let's do this. Um, in college, I don't know how many constituencies Peter has to deal with every day. And I say that with the greatest respect, but it could be 20 or 30 to make significant decisions, especially with what we're going through now. And the level of diplomatic skill that I saw in ADs and those staff members associated with them was much greater than the pros. So Peter, yeah. do you, do you agree with that in just in terms of being able yeah, to speak absolutely. multiple you languages? Know, when you think about the complexities in, we, in the Ivy league and specifically at Columbia, we really take a lot of pride in the holistic support of our student athletes. So you think about all the different aspects that that entails career development, you know, job placement, connections with our mentors, but also to one thing, you know, somebody asked me one time, what keeps you up late at night? And it's mental health. You know, you think about the different challenges that these young men and young women have with anxiety and stress. And, you know, you hear these staggering statistics about one of every four student on a college campus will experience some form of depression during their four years on that campus. And so that's something that we're always looking at. And so the, the world has kind of changed a little bit and we want to make sure we support them, help them be prepared for life. And so 
to your question too, Jake, you kind of have a number of different buckets. You have the internal bucket, which is all the different internal operations, whether it be game management or the business operations or, you know, strength and condition and certain components there. And then you have the external and, and these are all the buckets associated with revenue generations, but also strategic communications and broadcasting, all those elements. And then you have the, the, the individuals within your department with sports program administrators that really are on the front lines working with these coaches to making sure that you compete for championships and at the same time that your student athletes have a remarkable experience and you prepare them to be successful in life by teaching life experiences and sports is an important part of that. Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I just remember in, you know, George Pine and Ben Sutton, you know, telling me and Andy Dolan and Dave Almey, you know, go out there and see what you got, you know, because we want to be structured at that time at IMG, maybe more like a professional sports team front office. And we came back and said, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> That's not going to work, you know, because you're not telling the faculty what to do you're not telling purchasing what to do. If you're a state institution, you're not telling the state government what to do. Um, or, you know, the revenue sports in much larger schools, you're not telling their shoe company what to do for the coach. Um, and it was, it was absolutely the greatest PhD that one could possibly get. And, you know, the appreciation for the level of complexity. And it's, it's to the point um, of you're trying to create the best young men and women for our future, um, you know, on these college campuses, not somebody to be picked in the third round, nothing against the third round. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Like. We have a former tennis player that I'm convinced will win a Nobel prize at some point. He's in med school right now, just a remarkable person, but yet was a remarkable tennis player. And so you can truly have that balance. Um, and I think that's the, that's the responsibility we have. And if I have any bone to, I have any bone to pick with college athletics, it's right. the responsibility to educate rather than the responsibility to graduate. And so I, th I think as we educate, we prepare yeah. people to be successful in whatever their given field their career is, but also as a citizen of society and their ability to contribute in a number of different ways and try to make a difference in terms of what we're trying to do in this world. Well, before we let yeah. you go, Peter, back to, again, uh, you know, your day job within, you know, the world of New York City, of which we all feel, you know, a, an amazing connectivity with, um, it wouldn't be proper for me not to ask you for your top <laughs> three or four sports movies. I think I told Jake that you're one of the most committed cinematic guru geniuses that I know. Um, and so as people are trying to get through the day and looking, you know, there's all these top 10 lists. But uh, for somebody that I appreciate, because you and I had a lot of these discussions when we were at IMG, but what's what are some of your top sports movies um, that you <laughs> would recommend? We have had these conversations, and I appreciate that. Uh, I may be. I, I actually wrote a screenplay. I think I told you that, Andy. So uh, it was a piece of crap screenplay, but I actually wrote it. Um, 
Was that the title of it? My favorite, in fact, my wife and I watched it the other day. My favorite, and this is not Oakland A's for you, is Moneyball. Far and away, my favorite. And and I'll give you a little backstory. My daughter is very, very talented singer. And so she got married about a year and a half ago. And the daddy-daughter dance she sang uh, the show, the song that the daughter in Moneyball sings. She recorded it, and it was her voice singing that song, the show. And so wow. Billy Bean's daughter, oh, remember Billy, she sang Billy it? She Bean's put the daughter. tape in, and right, actually yeah. she did the part. <laughs> yeah. that My daughter recorded yep. the part was, you're such a loser, Dad. You're such a loser, Dad. So she played off of that, too. But anyway, Moneyball is my best. Um, right. I, you know, obviously some oldies but goodies, uh, Hoosiers and Miracle. Uh, and then, you know, when you want to have a fun moment, I guess it's Tin Cup. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I send out right. an email now that we're in this virtual world and I send out an email uh, every week to our um, to our staff, our entire staff. And I, I have movie recommendations or document. I have document. I'm a big doc guy too. So ah, and then in the spirit, okay. in the spirit of uh, Brian Denny, yeah. who passed away this week, who played football at Columbia in the sixties with Bill Campbell, small world. Uh, we got to throw out Tommy boy, even though it's not a sports movie. Uh, but Bill, uh, Brian had a, Brian had a <laughs> remarkable run, not only at Broadway, yeah. but in the world of entertainment. Yeah. Well, Peter, Peter, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to continue this question uh, of Andy's uh, humor in that if you could be if you could if you could be any star in a sports movie. Wow. Which one would you have been? That is a really good one. How about uh, oh. the coach on Hoosiers? I'm going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go with Crash Davis. Uh, I'll, that's, where, that's where I'll go. I'll go Crash Davis. Uh, Jake, what about you? Right uh, for the wow. You know, throw it back on you. Who are you? Uh, yeah, no, I. Uh, you know, I. Um, oh, I really excellent. would like to be the caddy yeah. in the greatest game ever played for Francis. We met. Yeah. As I, I, I love that character. He was All right, I've changed my mind. We could go for another two hours, but I want to be Carl. I want to be Carl Spackler. That's what I'm. Very good. <laughs> From Caddyshack, I'll get you Gophers. So, uh, just to close it out, we're always selling something. So we appreciate your time today, um, Jake. Talk about uh, talk about our book, the Twenty Secrets of Success. Since we have talked student athletes. And then I'll I'll yeah. hit Peter up with a uh, with an additional chapter of Moneyball. Um, so go ahead, Jake. Yeah, no. Uh, back in 2018, January, it's hard to think that that was over two years ago already. Uh, we released 20 Secrets to Success for NCAA student athletes who won't go pro. Um, and really, it's it's a two half uh, two part book on one half, uh, how to succeed as a student athlete and the other on how to transition of out of sport and into life. And I think it hits home with your message earlier, Peter, of preparing student athletes for life, right. To succeed in life as, as great, you know, great human beings. Absolutely. Uh, Congrats. So, um, still going strong. 
And, and I'm lucky because I got to know Michael Lewis uh, when he wrote Blindside, um, uh, you know, uh, about um, the Memphis couple that uh, embraced Michael Orr and, um, you know, the whole incredible tidal wave of interest on Moneyball um, and knew Billy Bean when he was ending his career as a baseball player and beginning his career as, you know, a legend in analytics, metrics, et cetera. But just out this week or the week wow. before is Billy Ball, Peter, the whole story about how we created the concept of A's baseball in the early 80s, Absolutely. which was focused on the great Billy Martin. And Billy Ball changed sort of the tenor of how a lot of teams marketed. And we went, I just sent this out, and it is ironic, I'll leave you with this. On April 17th, 1979, the Oakland A's drew oh 653 <laughs> people to a major league game against the Seattle Mariners the supposed count of actual people at the game was 240, a major league baseball game, no bad weather. Two years later, after the Haases, who I work with, bought the team from Charlie Finley for $12.6 million, we drew, two years later, April 17th, so this evening, uh, that many years ago, Good 50,255. That has to be the most incredible bad to good in the shortest <laughs> period of time in the history of attendance, yeah. especially in Major League Baseball. So you never know. Um, and we can't thank you enough, Peter. Hopefully we get back out of the twilight zone to the real yeah, world. Yeah, great. Great spending time and, uh, with both we'll of you, and I appreciate soon. all that you've done over the years, Andy, in terms of your career. You've been a remarkable mentor for so many different people, and it's a great tribute to you know, your wisdom and your insight into this uh, phenomenal world of sports. And we wish both of you all the best, and thank you for letting me share some of my thoughts and insights with you, and hopefully somebody can take something out of this other than the fact that my daughter and I like uh, Moneyball and like the songs associated with it.